This is the Modern Longevitarian Podcast, and I'm Scott Stanfield. This is from my new show called It's My Friday that's live on LinkedIn Monday through Friday at 12 noon Eastern. Now, in the actual recording of this show and when it was streamed live, the intro and the outro was garbled. So here I am recreating that for you right now. This interview was with Farmer Lee Jones, a sustainable farmer from Ohio. And he has been delivering, his team have been delivering tremendously flavorful vegetables to chefs. Well, now he's delivering to your home. And I learned so much. I am on record as the modern longevitarian saying that you should start with clean food. And I stand corrected. It, that needs a revision. You need nutrient-dense food that is clean and grown in nutrient-dense soil. So as Farmer Lee Jones said in this interview, number one, it starts with the soil, then it goes to the vegetable, then it goes to the people. They also strong plants can fight off weeds and insects, and they start with selecting the strongest seeds. I've tasted this food. He shipped me a box for my family to try, and you'll see. And you can go to my Facebook page, my Instagram page, and you can see those um, and see what I've made. And it's absolutely the most flavorful vegetables I've had in my entire career of working in restaurants. Now, I wrote this. I love and respect art, the art that people make. It can be what you see in a museum, or it can be what you see on a plate or in a glass. What I love about the art that Chef's Garden and Farmer Lee Jones create is that it starts at an elevated level. This makes creating awesome dishes, flavorful food, so much easier. All you have to do is focus on not getting in the way and let the produce shine through. Now, enjoy my conversation with Farmer Lee Jones. Welcome to the show, Farmer Lee Jones. Hey, thank you very much, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. Um, it's a, it's a pleasure. You know, um, I've I've seen you on social media and TV outlets and all these things over the years, and and you've been everywhere. I even um, read an article that was in the Atlantic years ago, and and so. Um, you know, it's, it's been amazing. So, I mean, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. I mean, you're, you're known for this look you have with the, the bib overalls, the crisp white shirt and the, and the, and the red bow tie. Uh, can you give the listeners just a quick story on, on where that comes from and what it means to you? Absolutely. I don't own another pair of pants, Scott. I have 18 pairs of overalls, 18 white shirts, and 18 red bow ties. And there's no magic number to 18, but that's just a rotation. If I'm going on a trip, pack three or four pairs, but always have got, I mean, if you were to look in my closet, there they are. There's not, I don't own another pair of pants, but it actually goes back to uh, one of the few books that I actually read in high school. Uh, we, we always uh, took great pride in <laughs> You remember the yellow and black book that like you could read the synopsis of the book and still get a B in your uh, class without right. reading the book. We thought that was great. It wasn't very smart, but John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. And it really resonated with me. But um, little did I know in high school that we were going to really live that same thing that they, you know, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath talks about the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, a lot of farms, a lot of families were displaced. And in some cases, three and four generations all on one old jalopy of a, a vehicle with all of their belongings and grandma and grandpa riding in the back on a rocking chair and the dog and the plow and anything. And they were having to be relocated because they had lost their farms and they were just looking for a place to, to make a living and to earn a dollar. And there were farms that actually took, um, advantage of these mass numbers of people that uh, wanted to work. So there was a large peach grove or an apple orchard or oranges. And so there would be word out that there was work and there would be just lines of these people really desperate. Sometimes the vehicles were broken down or a tire would flatten or they were out of gas. They would push the vehicles in and they would get paid something really like a dollar a day to work there, but then 50 cents to stay in a camp and another 50 cents if you wanted a hot shower and a meal. So you'd basically, you know, you were working for nothing. But so the, a lot of these were farm families that were displaced and there's a particular scene. In fact, if any of the listeners want to go, um, back and, and, uh, 
there's a old black and white that you can still get on Netflix that does an amazing job um, with the story. It's about a three hour long story, but there's a scene on a Saturday night as destitute, as broken down, as much despair as they have, as worn and torn as their clothes are, as worn and torn as they are. There's a scene and they have a square dance on a Saturday night. The overalls are worn and torn and tattered, but they're clean and they had white shirts and bow ties on and they held their heads high despite the situation they were in. And um, that scene really resonated because in 1982, at 19 years old, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mother and father, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors and everybody that was there to celebrate our failure on our family farm. And my parents had worked extremely hard, non-drinkers, non-smokers, hadn't missed a day at church in 25 years. And at 19 years old, I saw an auctioneer auction off every single thing that my parents owned, including my mother's car and our home. And we were displaced. And so these overalls and this white shirt and this red bow tie, there's an old saying on the farm that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I could never put a three-piece suit on and look as handsome as you, Scott. So I might as well go as a farmer. And I, I'm, I'm proud, not in a boastful way of who I am and what I do and what I represent. And for everybody that ever wanted to have a farm, for every small farmer out there, for everybody that's had a farm and lost it, I represent people. And there's a scene in there that says, we're the people. And we're the people. We're living on the land. We love the land. We tend the land. We want to grow great, clean food for people and, and have some value. And we, we take pride in what we grow and the quality and integrity of the, of the product. But in our family on this farm, there's 121 families that help make this happen on a day-to-day -day basis on our farm. I actually have a registered trademark with the U.S. Attorney General's office with this outfit. If you've seen me today, you'll see me tomorrow. I go to church this way. I've been to funerals this way. I've conducted weddings uh, services this way. I don't own anything else. I have gussied up occasionally and put a suit tie on for the James Beard Awards over my uh, overalls, but uh, usually those get off, get, get come off. The, the suit jacket comes off because it gets too warm at those places. But right. so there, I, it's, it's hard to give a short answer to that question, but there's your answer. It's an amazing story, and and um, I, de I definitely want to ask you what it was like to to win a James Beard Award, being one of the first farmers to win a James Beard Award. Um, but I just, you know, for people who are listening here, I mean, your family lost your farm, but then that actually like put you in a position to to start, you know, farming sustainably and and doing this. So, um, what wh where did the idea come from for your family to like switch over and do it this this way? I mean. You know, this was really desperation. I mean, we, we kind of have fell back to what we knew. We started back at farmer's markets because it was instant cash. We started with a handful of acres that we could um, start and rent and uh, equipment that shouldn't have been used. I mean, it was just we replaced labor capital for labor and there was no money. We didn't take any money. There was no paycheck, but we started back at farmer's markets because we could put something in the ground. For example, a turnip green or a mustard green or a collard green or radishes, you're looking at 18 to 30 days and you can start and turn dollars. And I mean, it was very hand to mouth. Um, and at that farmer's market, I met a lady that was a whole lot smarter than we were. Her name was Iris Balin. She was a chef. We didn't know anything about Chef Scott. Right. Um, and she had a chef's jacket on. And she was looking for, of all things, a zucchini with a blossom on it. And you got to keep in mind, this was in the early 80s. It was pretty right. uncommon thing. But she had trained in France. She had seen... A different world in the United States during that period of time. Earl Butts, the Secretary of Agriculture in the United States, his message to farmers was to get bigger, to get out. And we weren't able to compete in the big market. We were we were growing 1,200 acres of fresh market vegetable and sending out about 10 semi loads of produce a day. And ultimately, we couldn't compete. It still wasn't enough volume. The universities were strapped for money. Same stories we hear today. And who's giving them money? Who's giving them the grants? It's the pharmaceutical and the chemical companies giving the universities grants to do research to help the farmers. And guess what? The research comes back and lo and behold says, you can grow more tons per acre, you can grow it more efficiently, you can grow it cheaper if you use these chemicals to grow the product. We had a paradigm shift in the United States. We left a way of rebuilding soils naturally and moved towards chemical and synthetic inputs to produce more tons per acre at a faster rate and more efficiently. 
And we too were on that bandwagon because that's the way the universities were um, pushing. But here's Iris Bale and saying, wait a minute, grow without the chemical, grow for the flavor, grow for the integrity of the product. And it really resonated more with my dad because what, what she was talking about had existed in America. You had to go back about 30 or 40 years. I'm talking like in the 30s, in the 40s, and even into the 50s. Farmers rotated. Now, farms still rotate today. And this is not about bashing other farms. They're existing within the model that is that exists today which is to keep costs low and to produce as many tons per acre as we can. And as it, as it, in that model, it works. As it relates to our income in the United States, we produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income, but we have the highest healthcare in the world. So it's working, but it isn't, it's not sustainable. A 3000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer, disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, we believe there's a direct correlation with the health or the lack thereof of our nation and the way that we're farming. So Iris is saying, you know, grow, grow without the chemical, grow for the flavor, grow for the integrity. And it resonated with dad because that's the way that the, it used to happen. A large farm used to be a hundred acres because that's about all a family could manage. A right. third of it was in crops to take to market. A third of it was sitting fallow to grow feed for the animals. And, a, and a, another third was sitting, well, a third for the market, a third sitting fallow, and another third growing crops to feed the animals in the winter. And then the next year you rotated. And they grew great crops without the chemicals. They cultivated mechanically rather than chemically. It's the same thing as a hoe, only they're attached to a tractor and you would go through and eradicate the weeds mechanically. Well, right. Guess what? Now we can genetically modify the seed. So when it's planted, it's sprayed. It kills everything that's alive, including all the biology in the soil, other than the genetically modified corn, wheat, or beans. And so Iris is saying, go this direction. It really resonated. As devastating as it was to lose the farm, it did give us that opportunity to rethink, what the hell are we doing? This just didn't ever really feel right. Right. And so a lot of our information came from agricultural books that are 100 years old. Wow. And my dad had a saying that the only thing that we were trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, that really was true. Obviously, we're trying to use technology today that wasn't available then and apply that too. But in many ways, our farm is trying to go back to the way that our ancestors farmed, but tie the technology that wasn't available to them and get us to this point. Wow, that's that's amazing. You're 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 singing to the choir here. I mean, I, I remember the first time I started having any gut issues was back in the '90s, and if you go back to that, as that's when they started spraying the wheat with glyphosate, right? Exactly. Right. And, and and most people don't know glyphosate's Roundup, and what they the farmers can do in that you know low cost piece is they actually will if they want to harvest the the wheat prior to a storm or any of these things, they would actually spray, spray the glyphosate on there, kill it, so they could actually harvest it and do those type of things. And um, and it's absolutely amazing. And so what is now becoming a buzzword in your world is regenerative agriculture, right? right. Sustainable agriculture. And what people are trying to do is, is uh, and there's two documentaries with that. One's uh, But Farmer's Footprint with Zach Bush, uh, he's an MD and he's put that together. And then another one with um, Ryland Englehart, which is Kiss the Ground that just came out recently. I don't know if you've seen those or not. I have not. Yeah. No. I, I haven't seen the Kiss the Ground one yet, but I've heard other, you know, um, podcasters like Rich Roll talk about it. Um, and um, Ryland uh, Englehart is actually a restaurateur in the L.A. area. Um, okay. And um, so he's been in the restaurant world. And um, with that, so but so most people don't understand that when we're eating genetically modified foods that we're eating, you know, um, A, is genetically modified, but B, there's chemicals in that and toxins and those type of things. And so maybe that you're right. There is a correlation between our lack of health and the food we eat and the way we farm. Right. And I, Absolutely I, there I, is. I agree with that. 147%. I mean, I couldn't even get any, any closer to that. So <clears throat> here you are, you've met this chef as Iris, right? Is in Iris Balin. Iris Balin's telling you to go this direction and you and your family, your dad and everything grabbed on. And so what was the next part of the evolution to get to this, to, you know, to our next step you guys took? Well, she was a chef for a brokerage firm and she just kept, she was so persistent. And we finally, you know, with a farm, you tend to, you're being so busy during the summertime that you don't have time to do anything but get the jobs done. But in the winters, when you sort of have that opportunity to regroup a little bit. So we said, look, come winter, we'd like to come in and sit down and talk with you. And she was just elated that we were willing to 
listen. Right. And we got in. It was a brokerage firm that was closed on Saturday, big, long conference table. She had that table full of books open to certain pages and excited and showing us in, uh, different products that she was interested in and thought that, that would do well here. And what she was really saying was that she said that she felt that chefs were looking for these items, that that this was a movement that was coming. She was really ahead of her time. We were at these farmers markets. We were about five years into farmers markets as this started to evolve. So we're at about 87. And we're, I mean, it's it's a rough existence, but we're scratched. Farmers markets today are a historic high, right. which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Farmers markets in the 80s were at a historic low because my mother's generation didn't want to do anything that my grandmother's generation did because it wasn't cool. The frozen TV dinner snuck its way in there at some point when this, when the second part of the family had to go to um, work to build submarines, to, had to go to build army tanks and machine guns when the men were at work, um, and it was gender specific at that time period, the women were tasked to come and help build machinery for the war. After the war, it really became two income households at that point because they recognized that both could work out of the house. And then the paradigm shifts to convenience food. And we lost our way. We lost where where a food source was coming from. And it became all about convenience rather than the integrity of the food. And here's this lady saying, you know, go this direction. So we abandoned the farmer's markets. We literally had a family vote. And we're five years into the farmer's markets. I'm 23 years old. And I see that we're building some regular business. I voted first. They said, well, if we, the farm, you know, Iris had introduced us to a handful of chefs. It was about 2% of our business and 80% of our aggravation because they wanted everything different than what we were used to growing it. And it was an entirely different thought process. And we were carving out a living, barely with the farmer's markets. So I voted first, they said, well, if we got it, cause dad said, we're jack of all and master of none. We're either gonna do chefs or we're gonna do farmer's markets. And I said, well, it's, you know, the farmer's markets are 98% of our business. We're building some regular trade. I vote farmer's markets, we abandon the chefs. We went all the way around the table. Everybody voted the same. We got to my dad, he refrained uh, to vote last. He took a clenched fist and he slammed it down on a cardboard table uh, card table in the middle of the barn. We had a couple glasses of water there. Those glasses of water went springboarding. He said, absolutely not. What Iris is suggesting we do is the direction this family needs to go. And what's more, it's the direction this country needs to go. We're abandoning the farmer's markets. You're going to get out there. You're going to find every chef you can find. And your brother and I are going to stay back and we're going to figure out the right way to grow it. And my vote counts for five and yours only counts for one. This discussion is over. Now you got work to do. Now go get after it. And that was the end of the discussion. Now, I don't know if you've ever had family discussions like that, but that was the discussion. And so that really moved us that direction. We were fortunate to hook up with folks like Jean-Louis Paladin, who was a highly touted uh, French chef that came to the Watergate Hotel in D.C. Because we started reading about this once we sort of tuned into this this world. And he was very gregarious and basically his message to american farmers at that point was your food is shit if you want to grow for me you need to figure out the right way to grow and of course here's this period in america where it's really driving the economic engine we can't compete in the automobile industry there's a lot of things we can't compete in but the agriculture was very efficient and we were competing on a global marketplace and just the, it, the growth was phenomenal in agriculture. And it was one of those commodities that we could trade on a world market on. And here's this French chef coming into our country telling us that our food is no good. Well, his message was not received by many very well, but he was absolutely right. And I think about had more of us listened to him then what we might have been able to save and change the direction much earlier. We're on that path now, but it's 30 years later. But man, we latched on to both of his legs, just like Iris, and said, okay, teach us. And he was willing because he recognized that we were listening to him and wanted to learn, turned us on to Danielle Ballou and Alain Ducasse and Jean-Georges von Richten. And then Ritz-Carlton chefs were steeped in European influence chefs. Mm-hmm. And so the Ritz-Carlton's and the Four Seasons and the St. Regis's and, you know, and so it's really been a world of evolving around growing for the quality and the integrity of the product for chefs over the last 37 years. And because of that, you were one of the first farmers to ever win a James Beard Foundation Award, right? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that it's an honor. It's an honor. That's overrated. At the end of the day, I'm a dirt farmer, and uh, it was it was something I really appreciated receiving. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't get wrapped up in too much in all of that. Um, well, this reminds me of when I went to Napa. You know, I go meet these uh, winemakers, and all they say is, "Oh, we're just farmers, right? We we, yeah. we happen to turn our, our 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 grapes into wine, right? You know, and yeah. do that." And so, um, this very very humble, right? And I and I grew up, you know, uh, in South Carolina. You know, none of my 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 great grandmother. I grew up just next door to her, and she had a farm you know, probably half acre farm and some chickens. And now we have chickens and we just, we live in the mountains at 7,000 feet. So we have a greenhouse. And my wife was like asking for some tips on how we can grow <laughs> in the mountains. Right. Um, right. But, but you're located in Ohio, correct? We are. It's, it's uh, an amazing microclimate. In fact, this area was huge in grapes before Napa Valley. Mm. Um, Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the great lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest and the soil we're on. Uh, is 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie, and it was all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago. Some of the richest sandy loam in the world. In fact, as near as we can figure, the largest concentration of vegetable farmers existed here as of any county in the world. There were over 330 vegetable farmers. They weren't big. Like in California, you can go to California and there might be a farmer that, several farmers that would have 30,000 acres or 50,000 acres. These were small truck farms. Again, 100 acres was a big farm. Whatever that family could manage. They grew their vegetables, their crops, and they took them into market. And, you know, we're sitting here an hour from Cleveland, an hour from Toledo, two hours from Columbus, three hours from Pittsburgh, an hour and a half from Detroit, uh, four hours from Cincinnati. So you have this amazing microclimate right in the middle, right along Lake Erie, and then these large metropolitan areas with mass populations. And before roads and refrigeration, really um, improved to the point where you had outside competition, those farms did quite well. But as roads and refrigeration began to improve, it's really the Walmart syndrome 50 or 60 years ago. One by one, those family-owned grocery stores went away, and one by one, those small family farms went away. And so those 330 farms, there might be four or five vegetable farms in our county at this point. It's really what happened all over the United States. Right. So, you know, with that, I mean, you're what one of the things that I've seen is, and I've read this in multiple places, is that what we see in the grocery store in the produce section is about 25% of what was in was available and being grown 100 years ago, right? So when your dad's saying we need to be as good as the farmers 100 years ago, and and I've, I've failed to thank you since we've gone live. I mean, you sent me some, you know, your team sent me some uh, a, a little sample pack, and it's been. I'm 90% plant-based. I've had my wife and, and my kids and I've been in heaven eating some of this produce. I mean, you sent me four types of beets and four types of radishes and four types of carrots and, and chefs out there know what this stuff is. And you see rainbow carrots at Trader Joe's and those places. So we're seeing some of these things, but talk about what you're actually growing on the farm now and, and what you, that is different than you, you'll see in a normal grocery store. Well, it is and beyond what people would probably even believe. I mean, if you can imagine for the last 37 years, 100% of our focus has been direct to chefs. And we ship from our farm. We picked an order. A chef would call. We would pick it today. We would ship it today. They would have it on a plate tomorrow. We went. We ship as far as uh, we do a lot down with Disney, New York City, uh, Chicago, Las Vegas, um, even over to the Mandarin Oriental, Hong Kong, Dubai direct from our farm, no middlemen, harvesting unique and specialty items, about 700 different products. The three most important things over the last 37 years that we've heard from chefs was number one was flavor. Flavor was the most important. Number two was flavor. And number three was flavor. <laughs> if they wanted that grown chemical free. They wanted it grown with integrity, but they wanted flavor. Flavor was the most important thing to them. And we've gone about doing everything that we could to grow the, the most flavorful vegetables that were humanly possible without voodoo, without genetic modification. It, what we grow is really healthy soil. And it's about getting in balance. Everything that we do comes fundamentally back to healthy soil. Healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people is really in a crux what we do. As a byproduct of flavorful vegetables, we have had a hypothesis that the nutrient levels were coming along with them, but we didn't know. And my dad really 
pioneered the drive for us to invest here on the farm. We have a laboratory with three scientists. We have a centrifuge. We have equipment that you you would think you were in a hospital. Mm. And we're breaking this stuff down and studying the nutrient, the nutrient densities. Um, it's I, I'm not a scientist. I can only talk enough about it to be dangerous. But we actually had 10 doctors in here Saturday morning do, getting a presentation from the Judah Ender who runs our department there. And we're breaking this stuff down. We're testing carrots and beets and kale and spinaches that are actually testing three to 600 times higher in nutrient and nutrient densities and the mineral levels they're testing off the charts. Now I can tell you that the more we dig into this, the more we have to learn. Um, we're still low in selenium. We're still low in copper. So there's some, uh, we don't have this perfected, but we're testing just through and through off the charts. And we're also going into grocery stores and testing some stuff. And, and again, it's not a knock on other farms. They're existing within a model the model that exists today is to hold the cost as low as possible to produce the most tons per acre. And if you can keep the costs under control and produce enough tons per acre, you can stay in business. As we move towards a plant-based, plant-forward future, we have to be looking at the integrity of the plant. If we make the assumption or the misconception or misperception that we can just start and eat those things the way they're being produced and the way they're being grown today, it ain't going to work. There's nothing there. We're finding that even the larger this product gets to be able to get the more tons per acre, the less there is in them. So that's not all of it, but it's a big part of it. We're testing our products at six different stages of its plant growth and finding significant differences in each of those stages. But it really comes about as the importance of the balance. We're harvesting the sun's energy. Just like when we go out in the sun and we harvest vitamin D, what right. we're doing is just like if we go and get blood work drawn, we find that we're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, low in calcium. We're doing the same thing with the soil. And that's no different than commercial growers are doing. In fact, chemical and synthetic companies will provide those services for free for farmers. And then, oh, by the way, here's the recommendation that we make to put the chemical and synthetic inputs on to mimic natural, to be able to get the plants to grow high and tall and fast with high, large yields. That's where our stops and goes a different direction. We're finding out what the soil is deficient. And this is what's really cool. And it's our personal belief, not trying to cast this aspersion on anybody uh, in their beliefs, but our personal belief is God designed a system far superior to anything that we can fake out chemically or synthetically. For us, it's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. So once we find out what those deficiencies are and what's really cool, and it's so simple, in a lot of ways, it's about getting out of the way, just like that chef says when he gets good ingredients. Get out of the ingredients way and let it speak to the plate. Right. Mm -hmm. Finding out what those deficiencies are. Different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So it might be alfalfa or clover or vetch or sedan grass or buckwheat. Based on the deficiency we're finding in the soil, we're planting crop specific. Unprecedented commitment to rebuilding the soil. Out of 350 acres, which is not a lot of acreage, we're the size of the flea on the end of the tail on the end of the dog compared to our neighbors that are farming five to 6,000 acres where it's, where it's GMO. This is not GMO. We don't believe in the use of GMO. But what we're doing is rebuilding that soil. So 250 acres out of 350 is taking and harvesting green chop based on the deficiencies we're finding in the soil, putting it into silage wagons and going back out and spreading that. In essence, where's the healthiest soil in the world? It's in a forest. Nobody's spraying that. You have the decay over hundreds of years of the leaves and the branches and the trees falling. And it's some of the healthiest soil in the world if you test that it's testing off the charts. So right. what you're really trying to do is replicate a forest-like scenario. You're taking these green chops based on the deficiency in the soil, folding those back in. And then the next year when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the spinach or the radish and we, we plant that in there, it picks that back up. And then when we eat it, it builds our immune system. Look, the Western cultures build around getting you well, not keeping you well. We right. look at the way we used to farm as more of a Western culture. Pharmaceutical companies make more money getting you well than they do keeping you well. Eastern culture is get the body in balance and defend against the disease in the first place. And so we really, that's the shift of healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people. It's unbelievable all the nematodes and all of the active things in that soil that need to be alive. When you spray to kill weeds, you're killing all the biology in the soil. 
And when we can feed that biology and then it can break it down, you can have available nutrients in the soil. And if they're not broken down into the proper form, the plant can't pick it up. So it's really, it's about feeding that biology. Don't, I get a little bit excited about this stuff. Well, Scott. I know. Uh, and I'm sitting here going, okay, what's the next question I'm going to ask? Because it's like, is this such an amazing thing? Cause I'm taking notes here. It's just like, I'm going to school, which for someone who a worked in restaurants for almost 30 years and has served a lot of food B has, and you don't, I don't know, you don't know my story. Both of my parents got cancer in their fifties. Wow. So my dad was 55 um, and got prostate cancer, had to go through chemo to get it reduced and then have his prostate taken out. He's 72 now, right? Fantastic. So yeah. And mom had um, uterine cancer and had to have a hysterectomy and both of them in their mid fifties. And so that's really what we started me on this because at the time I was 40 pounds overweight and I'm not 40 pounds overweight now. And I've been able to keep it. I've had to lose that weight twice. And mm-hmm. you are you are leveling me up and I've been for the last 17 years trying to figure out how to live a best life and change my genetic expression and now how to give people permission to change their genetic expression. And also I worked for three years and four days as a director of food and beverage at a hospital in Salt Lake. And Mm. I refer to that as a repair shop, right? Because people get broken and they go in and get fixed up and then are given a prescription to go out back into the world and we'll come back and fix you up again. But from a food standpoint, someone who has heart disease, right? They cannot have butter or cholesterol or those type of things, but they will actually give them margarine and, and peanut butter that has trans fats in it, which is proven to cause cancer. Right. And I changed those out to like Smart Balance and Justin's peanut butter that had just regular palm oil, red palm oil in it and not trans fats. And I was starting to get criticized for food costs going up because I was trying to feed people healthier way to eating. And this was in my 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 transition. And this is when I lost 40 pounds for the second time and I've been able to keep it off. But when you go back to your you said healthy, it starts because here I am talking about food. Right. I'm talking about clean food. But I'm forget- I'm missing the fact that it starts with the soil, right? It I'm missing it. Soil. Starts with the soil. So you're growing healthy soil, and that's like mm-hmm. even a precursor to what I even talk about, and that's amazing. So you're and you're talking about the whole process of this, and, and I love the fact that your food is so nutrient dense. Now, you've also recently started where not just chefs can get food, but people can have food shipped for, directly from your farm to their house, right? That's, that's right. And really, we had been thinking that for a while, Scott, but COVID kicked our behinds into fast gear. Um, right. 100% of our revenue was coming from restaurants. And we were chugging along pretty good. And regular customers we've been working with for many, many, many years. And some of those regular chefs that we've been, none of our chefs were regular. They're all fantastic in their own right. I right. Don't, don't mean to misspeak about the chefs and just some terrific bonds. Some of those folks are displaced at this point and don't know if they're coming back. And we had 121 families that are part of our chef's garden family here. Right. And all of a sudden, our income has stopped. We pivoted immediately. We had a website that was all I can say is clunky Mm -hmm. and really was not set up. It was more of an informational website for people to go on to and to learn about different products and how they could buy from the chef's garden and chefs putting together menus. And all of a sudden, we tried to plug it in and say, okay, we're going to do home delivery. And we switched and we sent boxes out to 300 chefs and said, chef, we're sending a box to your family. Here's what we're trying to do. And they were cooking like you guys did Sunday as a family and then posting those pictures and saying, go to the chef's garden and get a box. And we're, you know, we got 12 orders on the website and it's jamming. So folks were very patient with us and we're spending overnight trying to keep this thing moving. In the meantime, we started building out a site that was a little bit more user friendly, but we switched to home delivery. Uh, for folks to be able to get boxes, family-sized boxes, uh, delivered directly to their homes, regardless of where they're at. And, you know, it's we were seeing folks that were not buying just one box, but they were buying four and five boxes because, you know, this has been a tumultuous period 
for us on the farm, but everybody across America and across the world. And some folks were actually buying these boxes and sending them to another family that they thought could use a box. And so, you know, they were buying four and five, but everybody, you know, I'm thinking of this because we're coming into the holiday season. Everybody within their circle has folks in their circle. It's like, what do you get them? You know, you want to get them a gift, but they have two of everything known to mankind. They need nothing, but you can get them a subscription to a box a month that comes from our farm to their home, wherever they're at. And they, and you give them a box that says, I care about your health. I care about your well-being. I care about your longevity. And it's kind of a cool, unique gift. And you're supporting a farm that really wants to survive through this thing and our team. We're trying desperately to keep our team going here. And I know everybody has, has got their, their, their issues right now. So this has been a devastating, devastating year. My dad has been the driver of the farm. Uh, I have had the privilege of, from the time I was five years old, I knew I wanted to work with my dad, and I got that privilege, and I learned something from him every day. He's got two libraries, and he's read every book in them, and uh, from from modern-day management to 100-year-old agricultural books, and August 4th, we lost dad, and um, so, I mean, there's just, and everybody, and it wasn't a COVID situation. It was just, he was worn out, so. It's been a it's been a crazy year, but we have made that shift. Um, we're looking for corporate gifting for companies that have people that aren't working in brick and mortar right now that are working from home. What a great way to be able to tell an employee or a hundred employees or twelve hundred employees, hey, we care about your family. You're not into work. We don't get to see you every day, but we're going to send you a gift box of vegetables because we think we can lower uh, healthcare costs for companies. Yes. And I, I know that that you would be a firm supporter of that. I mean, I believe if folks got a box a week or a box even every two weeks, that the healthcare costs would go down for the companies that are providing the healthcare, and the people would live a healthier, happier, more productive life if they get these. I mean, it, we're seeing the numbers prove out that this stuff is off the charts three to six hundred times higher you need to get on a plane Scott come out and, and have a visit with us really I, I, I just think we speak the same language we do and I'd, I'd love to do that I'd love to bring my family out there and and experience it we're so we try to connect with nature so much and we've got a couple comments and actually um, my friend uh, and I was actually on his podcast um, gosh this was four years ago I think chef Sean Boucher he actually says love it two incredible people talk about my favorite thing food and Chef just recently opened his own restaurant in New Mexico, a taco uh, restaurant. And awesome. um, and um, he, I've been on his podcast, I think, three or four times talking about different things. And wow. he actually was the very first guest I had on my very first podcast called the Restaurant General Manager Podcast. And wow. touting his book called The Formula for Success. And he's been in the industry so long. And we've also got multiple comments in from Maria Campbell. She's a certified executive chef. And um, she said, um, it's been so hard for so many. Love hearing about your pivot. It's in, It was inspiring. Um, and so um, thanks for those two commenting on that. And you're actually, I'm listening to hearing about your pivot. You are looking at my pivot. Right. Right. Because I was furloughed from being a general manager of a restaurant in Santa Monica. I'm in Park City, Utah now. And this is where my family's home base has been for 16 years, originally from South Carolina. But I was furloughed on March 22nd. And mm-hmm. a really dear friend of mine, she's like, Scott, you've got this brand, Modern Longevitarian. You came up with this eight years ago and you've done basically nothing with it. It's such <laughs> a strong brand. You should do it. And she's been a huge supporter. We're actually working on some projects together um, and some some uh, course. We're coming up with a, uh, a longevity primer, about a hundred day primer, help people live their best life. But like I said, I, I firmly believe in what you're talking about. And when it goes to like lowering healthcare costs, um, when I worked at the hospital, I actually was saying, I said, at some point, there's going to be a penalty for people not being healthy on the insurance side because insurance companies want to make money, right? And people who are unhealthy are the ones that there's such a small percentage of people who actually recurring going into the hospital, right? right. The people who are, who are sick, right? And, um, but what it actually went the other way with like, companies like Health uh, IQ, where you can get a term in uh, life insurance at a discounted price, right, if you are healthy, 
right? If you can mm-hmm. run a seven minute mile or you are vegetarian or vegan or things like that, or lift a certain amount of weight or something like that, they, they do those type of things. So um, this is, um, this is a interesting um, piece of the puzzle that and, and approach you're taking. So gosh, any way that I could help spread the message of your nutrient dense food, that's 300 to 600% higher than what you can buy in a normal grocery store. I'm, I'm all in, I'm a hundred percent in to help, help you do that. Um, I wrote down like, all these questions, right? <laughs> really, uh, really um, uh, got to, to that. Um, well, a lot of them I did, right? I did ask a lot of the questions, but they, they just came out um, naturally through all, through all the things. So, um, I, you know, I did see on your website because, um, I, and this is a great quote, it says, and this is from you, it says, strong plants can fight off weeds and insects. So, um, Talk about, you know, I guess it's the soil. Basically, I'm thinking like immune system, like we can, if we have a strong immune system, human, a human does, we can fight off viruses, COVID, the flu, and all those different types of things, right? So what is it? Is it in the soil that actually helps people like, um, or help the plant fight off the weeds and the insects? Or what's going on there? Well, Scott, I mean, the, the first word that comes to, to mind is balance. Um I don't know how much older I am than you, but when we were kids on the farm, on Sunday nights, there was a show called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. The Mutual of Omaha Insurance Company sponsored the show. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like National Geographic's. We got to see species of animals in different countries that we had never experienced before. And they would show a herd of gazelle being hunted by a cougar or a tiger. Which one did they go after? They went after the weak one, right? Insects operate under the exact same premise. An insect will attack a weak plant. How do you how do you have a weak plant by having things out of balance and the plant struggling? And okay. so that insect knows, ah, there's my target. I'm going after that weak plant, and I riddle it. If you can get the soil in balance, we even have things. For example, carrot seed. We would buy carrot seed in. 160,000 seeds approximately in a five-pound box. Huge disparity in the weights within that, very inconsistent. Who's grading that? Who's checking that? Not many. Right. We actually have a gravity machine that we bought and a wind turbine, and we'll put the seeds in those. And that gravity machine will shake. Well, you can imagine that the heaviest ones go the least distance and the light ones go the furthest distance. And there's a little can, and they drop. So you dump them in, there's a flat screen, and then there's a can that will catch. So the heaviest ones fall, go the shortest distance, the lightest ones go the furthest, and there's five cans. And then we'll take a sampling from each of those five different cans and put them in a Petri dish and put them in a chamber and incubate them. And guess what? The heavier ones are stronger and they they take off much better. And the light ones are inferior. If, if you can excuse the, the layman terminology of a, a healthy baby versus a premature baby, a lot of times a premature baby doesn't have the same strength and vigor and it takes much more coddling to bring it along where the healthy one takes off and when it's fed the food, it takes off and it grows and, and goes well. It's the same thing with the seed. So getting the soil in balance, putting a healthy seed in that, and then it takes off and it's healthy. And the insect goes, that's like it's too strong. It, it, it doesn't want it because it's, that's a layman's explanation because that's how I understand it. If, if you were to come into the laboratory and talk to one of the scientists, they could do it way more intelligently than I can. But that's a farmer talking to you in a lay term, not to not because of the readers, but because of my inability to explain that any better. But that's well, a, a good way to explain it. Well, you're, you're selling yourself short. I mean, you're connecting a lot of huge dots there. I mean, and I love the fact that you can boil it down to where, you know, someone like me, you know, uh, redneck from South Carolina can uh, can understand it. Right. So it's super important, you know. Well, uh, I don't know about rednecks in South Carolina. Our chef, Jamie Simpson, who runs a facility that we have and we built 20 years ago called the Culinary Vegetable Institute, mm-hmm. um, he came to us because we met him through, I don't know if you know Bob Wagner. 
Bob Wagner was a chef at Charleston Place, who, and then Michelle Weaver trained under Bob, and Jamie trained under Michelle Weaver. And you know, you know how it works in the culinary world. And yes. So Jamie's been with us ten years. And if your listeners want to check out the Culinary Vegetable Institute, that's uh, he's doing some amazing things over there with food and looking at plants in different ways than we've ever considered. We tend to be one-dimensional in our our thought process about what part of a plant can be consumed. Every single part of the plant offers something unique to the plate. And we really kind of look at that. I mean, if you think about a Brussels sprout, you know, you've got this massive plant with all these canopies of leaves to grow the tiny little Brussels sprout. Well, they're in the cruciferous family and he's fermented those for over a year. You can eat the leaves off of that. And I mean, you would swear you were eating collard green. So Mm -hmm. looking at that plant in entirely different ways. Um, Farmer Lee Jones on Instagram, we'd love to hear from the listeners and let them know. Um, what they're doing and keep us abreast of things. But if they want to get that that product delivered at home, the farmerjonesfarm.com uh, website will take them there. We, you know, because we have folks on staff that normally are talking to a chef, we have a team. We I don't put people out on the road to go knock on doors. I've been in enough kitchens and seen a suit and tie walk in the back door and the chef's like, get them out of here. We don't have time. You don't have an appointment. That, and we've never done that. When a chef needs some information, they can call in. Our eyes and ears are here, and we can walk out to the field, take a picture of something, send it back to the chef and say, here's what it looks like, chef. And I'll say, I need 600 of them for a plate-up. Well, at this point, there's not as many chefs calling in because we're in the pandemic. So people can go to that website, and they can order online. They don't have to talk to anybody. But it's actually been kind of a breath of fresh air for folks to call in on our 800 number and talk to a live body in Ohio and us, uh, the Midwest, we're friendly folks. And so they call <laughs> in and, you know, it's kind of pleasant to get a friendly voice on this end and says, hey, how are you doing? How's your day? What's going yeah. on? And thanks yeah. for the order. We appreciate the order. It helps right. us. So, it does. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, you know, it's amazing what you're doing, right? I mean, you, and the, the, the ability for someone that you know to to be able to order this quality of food, nutrient dense, clean food, you know, delivered straight from a farm, is something that you know has never not gonna say never, but is rarely available, or something that we you know don't really pay attention to. And 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 a lot of things too is that. And going back to what you're talking about, the two um, the two earner, you know, mom and dad are out working in the in the in right. the world, right? You know, there's been a lot lost in our world in cooking. Right. Because it's not been passed down that that cooking thing. And you see a lot of great chefs, you know, like, well, I learned to cook from my my grandmother. Mom wasn't there. It was grandmother that they learned to cook from, Um, like from the the chef from Husk. You know, um, yeah, yeah, he actually learned a lot of stuff from his grandmother. And and so there's there's those type of things that happen. And I remember it's like, you know, because I've been ketogenic uh, for almost five years now. And my, my kids ask me occasionally, Dad, Dad, what do you miss? And I was like, my grand, my nanu's uh, biscuits, right? <laughs> and because um, I haven't had a good Southern biscuit in a long time. And so um, so you miss those things, those those things that, you know, our grandmothers are great. And I had great grandmother I grew up next to, as I mentioned before. Um, and it's like even like seeing the difference in the eggs that our chickens produce and the eggs that, that you huge buy at the store, huge yeah. difference, right? The yolks are different colors, the flavor is different, you know, and, and seeing the, the impact of that. Um, well, I normally ask where people can find you online. You gave us all that stuff. You and I connected on LinkedIn. Um, and so you're, you're on there as well, Farmer Lee Jones. And, um, um, is, and, and you know, there's one other thing in the packet that your team sent me. Um, there was this one thing because Thanksgiving is an important part you know, of the, of the year for me, because my heritage on my mom's side dates all the way back to the Mayflower. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm like 17 generations from the Mayflower. And, um, but, um, I saw in here that you have this for with, um, what is it? Uh, T Hill farms, right. You're, you're, uh, connecting with them for their, um, go ahead and talk about the turkeys. So we can yeah, talk about it, that. It, it, we're, we're not shipping that one. That one's more of a local pickup, but, uh, uh, yeah, our chef is actually doing Thanksgiving dinners. Look, the reality is people are going to be eating at home mm. uh, for Thanksgiving. There's a lot of chefs. I just talked to a chef yesterday. He said last Thanksgiving, I mean, they were just packed. They couldn't take another reservation. Right. And people are eating at home. So it's, yeah. a, it's a to-go concept uh, where folks can come and pick it right up. And uh, T. Hill does an amazing job of heritage turkeys. So we've partnered with them. So people can order the heritage turkey. 
uh, along with our fixings that go with it and we'll cook it for you. And all they got to do is come and pick it right up. But, so yeah. it's just something that we're trying to do. Uh, we've actually, uh, at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, was designed for chefs to be able to come with their culinary teams and stay right on the campus and be able to do R&D, R&R, and be able to play it's 100 acres. It's a log type of a facility. And we've um, converted to Airbnb. And folks have been coming and doing an overnight experience or a couple nights. We have one couple that's actually going to be there now for their 10th visit since COVID. They just absolutely love it and uh, can stay right on site. And depending on what they're looking for, they can uh, uh, have the chef cook for them or prepare meals or pre-prepare it. And then they can cook in a world-class kitchen. Um, and Jamie's basically got everything set and ready for him and they just got to cook it. So, right. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing, you know, because Thanksgiving has actually turned in, in restaurants where when I was growing up and you were growing up, it was something that always happened at home. You never went out to eat. Right. And, um, I've seen restaurants, even restaurants that I managed that, um, that Thanksgiving has turned into one of the biggest days of the year, if not the yeah. biggest day of the year. Right. right. And so there's less people even cooking out for that. And so um, it's, it's, um, and so now with restaurants cut down to 25% or 50%, those type of things, A, the restaurant, like you're taking care of those 121 families, the families in each one of these restaurants are going to be struggling, to, but because 50% uh -huh. of those employees are going to be home and, and those type of things. But I love the fact that people can order like this heritage heirloom uh, vegetables from you and prepare them in their house and really right. have a healthy meal that um, harkens back to a time that was a lot simpler, right? And you're getting these, you know, getting these vegetables. So, um, gosh, do you have anything else to, to add, you know? Well, Scott, I mean, I think that you kind of touched on it. This has been devastating for so many of us, but what we have to do, out of, and here's my belief, you know, out of the ashes of this, and many things that have gone wrong, there's going to be good things that come out of it. Um, I believe that kids like to emulate their parents. And I believe that if we knew the facts, there were perhaps more gardens planted in the United States than at any time in the history. And my guess is those kids were out there helping mom and dad plant that garden. Mm -hmm. And how do you get a kid interested they want to emulate their parents. And if they get to help with the garden, they are just as excited to plant it as they are to pull that carrot out and then to eat it. And we have created now a new generation of gardeners moving forward that is just a wonderful thing. Folks are eating together as families. Again, look, I love the restaurant business. It sustained us for 37 years and we're still in it, all in it for the chefs. We're just waiting and eager for them to come back. But there's good things that can't we can find out of this, and we've got to look for them. And there is hope. There's hope for another day, and hope for the future. And we're gonna we're gonna have to look for the lessons learned out of this, and and make the best of it. And God be with you all, and stay strong, and keep in touch with us, and let us know what we can do to help you. I sure will. Um, this has been an amazing show. I expected to talk more about farming and we ended up talking about health and longevity, which is my game, right? So um, it's been a surprising show uh, and I've been, it's been super amazing. I'm going to wrap up the show. If you want to hang on for a second, we can talk once the show's over and then uh, right. we can um, talk about so much. in the future. I'd love to have you back on in the future as we grow. And um, I'm having, you know, like this week I have four guests, right? I'm doing this Monday through Friday um, at 12 noon, your, your time. And, you know, it's 10 a.m. for me. So um, I'm going to wrap it up and, and um, we'll, we'll go from there. Okay. The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Thank you for listening to the Modern Longevitarian. Please show your support by giving us a kind review and subscribing. You can also learn so much more about increasing the quality of your life today and the quantity of your life tomorrow at our website, modernlongevitarian.com. You can also join our private Facebook group at the link in the show notes. Come back next week for another amazing episode of The Modern Longevitarian.